it, or at least it appears to be one of almost the predominant trends in contemporary philosophy, namely the, one of the greatest breaks in maybe the entire history of philosophy is the Kantian break. You know, Immanuel Kant introduced the notion of transcendental dimension, which means what? It means that, again, we don't have direct access to reality if there, this reality exists at all, the way it is in itself. Our access to reality is always mediated, structured through, let's say, the lenses, the network of our subjectivity. And this is not necessarily, and here transcendentalists are pretty intelligent, giving even a materialist version of it. This doesn't necessarily mean idealism, like, you know, there is no reality being subjectively constructed. No, it means that precisely we subjects are not some pure mind, immaterial mirror which reflects reality, but we are part of reality. We don't observe reality from nowhere, as it were. So the reason why our perception of reality is always distorted, fractured, biased, is precisely because we are part of reality. I mean, Marxists always, and they are justified, make this point, that uh, in criticizing what they call so-called contemplative materialism, we are not pure tabula rasa, empty mirror, somewhere up there, mirroring reality. As Marx liked to emphasize, we are always practically engaged with reality. Even science, for example, and that's the classical motive taken over later by other philosophers up to Heidegger, take science and technology. The transcendental approach would have been not to deny that science provides true knowledge, but to claim that when you approach scientifically reality, already the way you approach it is not neutral in the sense that you in advance implicitly define or conceive reality in a certain way as something subjected to natural laws or as like as Heidegger tries to demonstrate as an object of potential technological manipulation and so on and so on. So again the point is not this or uh, let me give you another twist to this transcendental uh, approach, and it, it may surprise you. Uh, let's say someone, a girl, a woman, or a man, whatever, is brutally raped. And you know, one of the ways for police to annoy you is to demand a precise witnessing report from you. And then, if they catch you, by you I mean the victim, with some slight inconsistencies, they always say, ah, didn't you imagine it, and so on and so on. But my answer to this would have been the opposite one. If somebody is brutally raped, what would have made me suspicious is precisely if he or she can give a totally neutral, consistent account of it. It is that 
the very distortion of her or his report is, I think, the proof that she or he was really subjected to a traumatic experience. You see, this is the point. And it's a very nice, deeply Hegelian point. The point being that since trauma is what, in Lacanian terminology, we call the real, that impenetrable traumatic point that we cannot integrate, the real is not the reality out there on which we speak. The real is inscribed into, as it were, the very distortion of our perception of reality. You know, again, imagine a woman reporting to policemen on a rape. What proves that we have been within here with the real trauma is precisely her distortion of reality. So here I, uh, maybe you can provoke me here if you would agree or not. Here, ah, you're, uh, let me just finish this rape line. I once, years ago, developed a line which it was interesting how some feminists uh, attacked me, but many, including my eternal friend enemy, uh, Judith Butler, agreed with me, at least up to a point, you never know with her. Does she really agree or not? No, sorry, what I want to say is that uh, the point is this one, along this, I, I claimed and I thought I'm giving uh, an extremely pro-feminist argument and I was shocked that some people misunderstood me. I, okay, that's my mental experiment. If you read my earlier work, this was 15, 20 years ago, maybe you know it. Imagine a woman being raped and then imagine two types of women as possible victims. One is an autonomous woman relying on herself, blah, blah. The other is, uh, let's call it naively, you know, a passive, weak woman, maybe even daydreaming about being maybe not raped, but brutally uh, mistreated and so on. So my argument was, and it's confirmed from what I learned in my own country, Slovenia, where there were many refugees from civil war that we had, 20 years ago, there refugees have been women. That uh, paradoxically, in contrast to what you would have expected, although it may appear falsely that the first woman, the autonomous one, would be more hurt because you know she perceived herself as autonomous, free agent, blah blah, and it should humiliate her more than the poor woman who maybe had some masochistic dreams and so on. My argument was, and I can tell you it's confirmed with what I learned from psychiatrists who were dealing with it, is that paradoxically the second one, although formally she got in some vulgar sense, she got in reality at least up to a point what she was dreaming about. She would be much more brutally hurt. If you look for who can maybe make, kill herself later, suicide, it will not be the autonomous man. The autonomous man, it will be horrible for her, but she will, as they say, take a good shower, wash herself, and fight back or whatever. Now I come to my crucial point. You see, you know this disgusting male justification of rape. You know, like, 
even if women protest, fuck it, they secretly want the, you know, all that bullshit. Now you can say, but what am I saying here? Am I not saying that she secretly dreamt about it? And here, I hope you will agree, but I'm ready to be interrupted. Here comes my, I claim, radical feminism. I claim that, and that's the fine point of psychoanalysis. If you secretly fantasize about something, and if this, what you dream about, is brutally imposed on you from outside, it's much worse than if something is imposed on you that you didn't dream about. You know, if you get in brutal form from out, you know, because why? It's the utter humiliation. Why? Because, you know, the problem is that uh, desire is a very ambiguous thing. What we secretly desire, dream about, we don't really want it to happen. If we get it in reality, it's experience as... Sorry? Oh, I thought, ah, you see, this is called really semantic ambiguity. Are you just scratching your nose, or...? <laughs> okay, strike back, yes. Um, it sounds like you're talking about two different kinds of object art. One which is object art of fantasy, yeah. and the other one which is completely estranged object art, kind of like just if somebody just out of blue rapes us without us even thinking mm. about it. So it's like kind of like But you even go too much into theory here. I prefer, although if you want, we can talk two hours on object A. You know, all I wanted to say just is that uh, a very naive, almost commonsensical point I was making, no? And for this reason, that is my, if you want, feminist point, I think that, I think that, again, if a rapist claims, but fuck it, she was, provoking me to do, I know she wanted secretly to do it. She should be punished even more, I claim. You know what I mean? You, you, it's too easy to justify rape with the idea that you have, you have clear signs that she somehow wanted it. There is nothing more humiliating than having it brutally imposed on you what you secretly dream about. Because our fantasies, our innermost fantasies, what Freud called primordial fantasy and so on, are something extremely, you know when you get a touch of it, much more modest uh, uh, touch of it. Did it happen to you, this embarrassing moment, like you meet someone with whom you were close to decades ago when you were a small kid, and usually with your close friends or uncle, parents, whatever, you have some half-private language, nicknames, how they called you, and so on. But imagine then you are at some reception officially, and that guy, ah, ah, and calls you by that name, and so on. I almost cannot imagine anything more embarrassing, and so on. You know, or as they say, uh, to realize your dreams, no? This is the best definition of nightmare. <laughs> so, uh, uh, incidentally, about rape. Although I know of one example where things were opposite. My friend, I'm glad to say this, Julian Assange, told me that the woman who accused him allegedly of rape now came open in Sweden and said, listen, this was some condom misunderstanding. I dragged him to bed. It absolutely was not in any meaningful sense a rape. You know what I like? 
We know what was the reaction of police, the opposite of the usual reaction, which is, you know, poor woman claims I was raped, the obscene policeman say, are you sure, didn't you enjoy? Here it was that the victim claim, claims there was no rape, and the police claims, no, you don't know, stupid woman, you were raped, and so on and so on. It's a totally crazy situation. But let me go on. So this is uh, also, let me put it in another term. I'm so sad that we don't have the video clips, but I don't blame you. I'm just too lazy to prepare all of it. I've written about it in, I forgot which of my books, uh, namely, uh, I hope you saw Hitchcock's, my God, it's now officially, the latest opinion poll of sight and sound, the greatest film of all times, Vertigo. There are even two songs there, especially one at the beginning, which has a wonderfully ambiguous status. Uh, no, you don't have even to know the story. Scotty James Stewart is hired to follow Madeleine. He goes into that restaurant, Ernie's, and this is uh, an element of your American barbarism. It's now a shitty pizza place, whatever place. <laughs> and it was a nice place, you know. I was there just at the end when it still existed, Ernest. So, okay. And uh, then you have the crucial scene. He, Scotty, observes Kermadlen. She is, she is approaching him because he is at the bar, sits close to the exit from the restaurant. And then you have him like cannot decide should he look at her or not because she's standing waiting for her husband behind his back, he says. And then you see the famous hypnotic shot. In profile, Kim Novak, Madeleine, an artificial, almost golden, a kind of fantasmatic image light beside her. What's so interesting here? It's uh, some Eskakazi, some French guy brought on to this. How almost all big interpreters from, from uh, Robin Hood onwards, read this shot of her as a sub subjective point of view shot. But look at it closely and you will see that it's not. That the point is that he is too fascinated by her, it's impossible for him to sustain her breath, so it's more that, and that's the mystery, it is a subjective shot. It's not she in reality, it's clearly a fantasmatic shot. But it's too intense, too strong. He cannot, you know, it's... And uh, again, why this mistake is made by almost all readers? They automatically describe this as a point of view shot. And they avoid the basic paradox of the notion of fantasy. That it is a subjective formation, but a kind of objective-subjective formation, something that's too intense libidinally, too strong, and you cannot integrate it, confront it face-to-face, -face, subjectively assume it. In other words, I wrote this in many of my books, uh, uh, to understand the functioning of fantasy and other similar phenomena, you have to introduce a wonderful concept that Daniel Dennett uses it in his concept as explained, but unfortunately just in a mocking critical way. Uh, uh, namely, the difference between how things appear to you and how things objectively, effectively appear to you. You see the elegance of this argument. It's not simply this is how things really are, 
and this is how things appear to you. No, you are not even aware how things really appear to you. And this is the whole point of the notion of fantasy. Fantasy is not subjective in the sense of what you are dreaming about. Fantasy is the unconscious, if you want, network of how things appear to you, but, again, in your unconscious, you cannot uh, assume it. And uh, again, you get a couple of times, we don't have time to go in vertigo, this nice example of an, let's call it, objective appearance. Things appear, but not subjectively to you. And it's a wonderful notion, and I claim, I developed this many times in my books, that, that this is also the key to Marx's notion of commodity fetishism. Marx is saying that there something so wonderful that is still actual today, and I have no problems criticizing Marx. <laughs> but uh, there he is wonderful. Namely, Marx is not simply claiming, just read that small supplement to the first edition of uh, Capital on the secret of commodity fetishism or whatever. Marx is not saying we have the reality of the universe of commodities, market, and then fetishism is the way we misperceive it. No, fetishism is in the, as it were, reality of how we act on the market. So when Marx says this short formula of fetishist ideology, sie wissen das nicht, aber sie tun es, subjects caught in fetishism, no, not what they are doing it, but they are doing it. It's not simply they are doing something, but they think they are doing something else. No. The catch is that what they don't know is the illusion they are following in their activity. For Marx, it's not simply that commodity is a social phenomenon, but to us, fetishists, it appears as something magic and so on. As Marx put it nicely, no. To an ordinary bourgeois subject, Commodity doesn't appear as a magic object, but simply as some object out there you can buy for money, blah, blah, blah. But it's, the illusion is inscribed into the objective network of commodities. That's why we are coming back to, you remember, two days ago I quoted for hundred times that Niels Bohr horseshoe. No, I know. I know it's not true, I don't believe in it, but I was told it works even if I don't believe in it. That's what we do on the market. We don't believe in commodity fetishism, but we practice it. We act. So this is, I think, again, a wonderful idea. This idea of an illusion, which, as it were, has material existence, and is in this sense constitutive of the material social order. If you take the illusion away, reality disintegrates. You know who knew this, if you want to amuse yourself. He is a great philosopher, usually dismissed as vulgar utilitarian, Jeremiah Bentham. In his famous, a friend of mine published a selection, is now long sold out by first of theory of fictions. How uh, he first begins Bentham by distinguishing between what is in reality and symbolic fictions we built out of it. But then he adds something very mysterious. He said, we can make this distinction, but you cannot then drop fictions and keep only reality. If you erase fictions, you lose reality also. 
So, uh, uh, now, of course, so that I don't lose my thread, let's go back to Kant, transcendental dimension, and so on. Uh, so, uh, transcendental, what Kant calls transcendental dimension is this type of uh, unconscious notional network. You are not even aware of it, but it's always here structuring your approach to reality. Uh, of course, I agree with new materialists that we should move beyond this transcendental horizon. But we should nonetheless first give to it what is due to him. You know, the, the deepest point of transcendental approach is not the point about subjective constitution of reality. How there is no reality in itself, what we perceive as reality is always constituted, mediated through our subjective, even if it is collectively subjective perspective. And for example, this would have been a nice example of transcendental approach. Uh, I'm sorry if it is sexist, but let's take a beautiful woman. You can approach her as, okay. Yeah, why not? What's wrong about it? Towards whom? Women. Why? And anyone who is not an anti-feminist chauvinist. Why? 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 If you're not insulted by these examples, then you are. I'm not insulted by these examples. Yeah, why? No, no, let's talk about it. I sincerely don't get it. Why? You think that if you there say this... Why? I, I agree with gender and sex, and it will be immediately uh, clear why I use this one. But why insulting? Who is insulted and why? First of all, uh, you broke women into two broad categories, and you seem to think that that was sufficient characterization of all women. No. In your first I just took two extremes. I, I made it clear. Yeah. You know where I see in what I said a deep feminist tendency, I will tell you, because I claim that what shocked me with many feminists is that uh, they tried to dismiss the very idea to which I relied, that there may be women who secretly dream about masochism, blah, blah, they claim this is male projection and so on. But I claim that the way this de facto works is putting women under pressure to make women feel guilty if they have masochist dreams. I claim, why not? They should have full right to have the nastiest masochist dreams and so on, of being raped and so on. Here we have to draw the line. But this gives no one the right to realize these dreams. I claim, and not just from theory, but from experience, not mine, of what some psychiatrist told me, and so on, that how uh, such a procedure of, they, they, okay, those who claim, who want to dismiss this so-called masochist rape dreams, claim either they are male fantasies, and to a large extent they are, I claim, or they claim women who do this just internalize 
male values there subordinated to male ideology and so on and so on. I reject this. I think that sexuality is in itself in this way perverted. It's original. You cannot. If, again, as I already said uh, uh, two, uh, two, uh, two days ago, uh, this is the trauma of Freudian discovery, which is alive more than ever today, that human sexuality is effectively in itself twisted, politically incorrect, and so on and so on. You cannot isolate some pure, authentic, uh, how do you call it, full mutual recognition sexuality and then put the blame on society for its distortion. Sexuality without distortion doesn't exist for necessary reasons. Which is why, again, I think I did quote two days ago, I did mention, uh, although I don't otherwise like her too much, but here she had an insight, uh, Naomi Wolf, who said that if you try to imagine politically correct, totally, sexuality with full respect, no harassment and so on, you get the model of a contract. Everything else, there is no politically correct, I emphatically claim this, process of seduction. Always someone must make a move which retroactively can be proclaimed harassment, or, and that's the beauty, Dupuy, whom I mentioned the last time, said this, uh, that's why, uh, you know, here you see the paradox. Let's say somebody makes a pass of seduction. Then he can be even accepted or rejected. He can be rejected claiming, no, you violated the harassment and so on. But, so there is an obstacle. But if his advances are accepted, we shouldn't say that he successfully, he did successfully overcome the obstacle. No, he establishes that there was no obstacle at all. It's a, assume, you know, it is the same thing that, again, think about vertigo, Hitchcock's vertigo. Uh, I hope you know the story. At the end of the film, when Scotty discovers that Madeleine didn't exist, that the first, even original Madeleine was already Judy masked as Madeleine. This is a weird kind of a loss because he doesn't just lose Madeleine, but he retroactively establishes that what he lost never existed even before. It's a much more uh, paradox. It's a much more paradoxical movement. So again, that would be first. That uh, that, uh, that that would have been my my thesis. And again, I'm again asking. I accept everything, but again, if it's what word was it used? Insulting? Who is insulted and why? I still don't get that. I get it that it's in this formal sense sexist that I don't know. I may have chosen another example or what, but why? Who is insulted? I just asked him. Who is insulted here? Uh, one way would be ugly women, like I implicitly so called ugly women, okay? That I imply that. Uh, I don't know that I privilege uh, uh, beautiful women and so on and so on. Okay, but okay, let's drop the, this and let me go on. on. Okay, I will try to take another example. 
uh, rabbit. No, I forgot what the name here. The square. Sorry? The square. No, it doesn't work because that's the reason why I wanted to use the example of beautiful woman that uh, we can, men but also women, how can you approach beautiful woman as an object? You can approach it as an object of biology, of a body. You can approach it as an erotic object. You can approach it as a, and again, many, many other ways. But uh, that's the catch. For naive, realist approach, they would have said that, okay, there is something like the reality of the woman out there, and then there is, and then there is uh, uh, the different ways we perceive it. For a transcendentalist, no. They would have said, every approach constitutes its object. If you approach a woman, a man, I'm sorry, I'm not cynical here, a rabbit or whatever, as a scientist, it will appear you as a, in a certain way. If you approach it as you are hungry, you are trying to catch a rabbit, it's in, but you see my point, a radical transcendentalist will not allow you to simply distinguish between reality in itself, accessible probably only to science, and all these, let's call them, subjectively interested approaches. And I'm here, in some sense, more on the transcendental side, in the sense that I claim that it's all too easy, I mean, if nothing else, my God, I learned this from feminist critics of science, how the usual, at least, biological apparatus, it can be shown. Uh, the conceptual network that it uses already secretly privileges men. You know, science, I don't think that science can be simply subjectified. I am not a new uh, Paul Feyerabend, etc. Anything goes, we can do whatever we want. I'm not saying that uh, scientific results are simply uh, 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 co uh, historical constructs. But what I am saying is that nonetheless, science is part of society, which means that its conceptual apparatus is not simply neutral. And the, this, the inquiry into, is there a secret, either sexist uh, bias or social bias, whatever, you know, uh, is that so? Okay, I, this is what I hope you got the gist of uh, the point of what I'm trying. Yes. Can you talk about this in terms of collective unconscious on collective unconscious level? For example, I'm so afraid of this term. You know, it's I know, I know. Yeah. Term, yeah. But I'm saying, let's if we take 9/11, uh, for example, could we say there that uh, if if we say the fantasy became true through all these movies and you know before yeah. that. Could we say that, I mean, I'm sorry, but could we say that U.S. is then becoming raped in, a, in some way and then... That it becomes? Raped in a way that... No, but it's a good example in this sense that I claim that the reason it was such a trauma, and again, if I reapply to it that parallel with rape, that the reason precisely that 
in this, let's call it rather collective imaginary. This topic of a mega-terrorist attack catastrophe was all the time here already. You see, that's my point, that this made the shock worse, not easier to sustain, no? But not what Richard Walling, a Habermasian, accused me, that I somehow implied that you got what you deserved, or not even more, what you wanted, what you were dreaming about. Absolutely not. Again, if anything, it's even worse what you got there. I always say, and when I deal with it, I, I, I mention also, this is the most beautiful example. We all know it, I'm ashamed to mention it. Titanic. Do you know that the extent to which, not just the general idea of a catastrophe, but precisely this catastrophe was part of imaginary. Do you know that two or three years, I write about this, I forgot in which one of my books, a novel was published which dealt with the ultra-transatlantic ship which on its first trip drowns. And you know what was in the novel the name of the ship? Not Titanic, but Titan. I mean, it's incredible. And again, so you see my point. It was such a shock, not because it was unexpected, but precisely because it was expected. And to make you feel this logic, let me turn to another Hitchcock movie, Psycho. I hope I don't have to lose time, you both know it. There are two great, great, okay, classical murder scenes there. The murder of uh, Marion, the famous shower murder, and the second murder of Ardogast, the detective. I always preferred the second murder. The first murder is pure shock. But the paradox of the second murder, you remember Argogas goes up the stairs in the mother's house, is that uh, all points towards the murder that something will happen. Murder is not a shock, and that's why when Norman figure enters, it's even more of a shock. You see? Uh, uh, but okay, I could go deeply into this stuff, but uh, not now. Let's return to let's return to the topic of the uh, of the uh, transcendental. So, uh, uh, for me, and uh, I was attacked ferociously by Graham Harman, the big speculative realist, for this. Philosophy as such is in a way transcendental, not in the sense of Kantian transcendental subjectivity, but in a more basic sense. In what sense? For example, when, and that's Heidegger's thesis, when philosophy uh, deals with, uh, for example, asks what is truth, the authentic, true, philosophical interest, or, for example, what is life, is not the realist question of biological definition of life, but it's, a, to use Heidegger's term, a transcendental hermeneutic question. It's a question, look, in our daily world, we all the time use words like life, soul, and so on. The question is, how do we in our daily life, 
How do we always already understand life? What is the implicit understanding of it? And this is where Heidegger then introduces the notion of historicity into transcendental dimension. For Heidegger, big, for, or for example, uh, I don't know, for example, truth. The way we privilege truth today, we privilege scientific truth. Truth as what can be experimentally confirmed as objectively existing and so on and so on. It is clear that this is the modern scientific notion of truth. We cannot apply the same notion of truth, for example, to Plato. To Plato, truth is not the uh, accordance, how we call it, uh, between, uh, between our statement and reality. Like, uh, I look at an object and I say it's a chair there. Now, if there really is, I simplify to the utmost, a chair out there, my statement is true. For Plato, it's almost the opposite. Truth is not the, how do you call it, adequatio in Latin. The correspondence between. Truth does not mean my statement fits the object. Truth is a property of the object itself. Truth, a true, for Plato, the question is not, am I saying, is it true what I'm saying about a chair? But is, it, is this chair a true chair? And it is a true chair if it fits uh, the idea of the chair, and so on. You know, truth is constitutive of empirical reality itself, which can be more true and less true. So, okay, or another obvious example, nature. I mean, what is nature? One thing is the pre-modern, but even their things are, of course, much more complex. Uh, we shouldn't throw all them together notion of nature, even material nature, which can be spiritualized, but still in a way materialist. I call this the Hobbit notion of nature, Hobbit material. Because did you notice something interesting in Hobbit uh, uh, movies? Uh, uh, that uh, although, of course, you have supernatural phenomena there, ghosts, magic objects, but there are no spirits in the pure sense of transcendence. All spirituality, magic, is material magic. It's only this world here which is full of ghosts. There is no beyond. That's why there are only evil spirits, good spirits, whatever you want, but no divinities, nothing, nothing above. So this would have been pre-modern nature, which, this is crucial, is immanent, Meaning is immanent to it. What we, beginning by modernity, claim is that we should distinguish between reality in itself and the meanings and so on we project onto it. Now, for a philosopher, the first question is not, so, which notion of truth is really true? It's just to describe these different horizons. In medieval horizon, you don't have this distinction between what Pascal calls this grey, silent, infinite world of soulless world of ma 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 mathematical, I mean, 
of objects which can only be dressed in mathematical formulas, and then our subjective values that we project onto them. And of course, one consequence of this is that art appears as much less truthful as science. Like they say, science gives you, gives you, sciences give you the truth, art only evocates some emotions, uh, feeling of beauty, it doesn't really touch the truth. No, the philosophical problem is just to describe different, or as Michel Foucault would have put it here, he is Heideggerian, different uh, epistemes. Episteme is Foucault's name for different transcendental horizons. No? And for example, what Foucault describes you should, I was informed that you will leave, please do it more demonstratively. <laughs> Enough of this shit. <laughs> Sorry, thanks. You know, for example, you must know this. The whole point of Michel Foucault's Histoire de la Folie, History of Madness, I think it has a different title here, is precisely to describe a big shift in the perception of madness. Before, modernity, specifically French Baroque modernity absolutism, madness was either demonic possession or madness had a deeper meaning. It was either this, uh, in some kind of a sacred dimension speaking to madmen or simple possession by demons or decadence, whatever. With modernity, madness becomes a matter of medicine, uh, <coughs> biological process of decay of the brain or whatever, whatever. It's, uh, which is why only with modernity you have institutions, madhouses, madness. You see, and again, for Foucault, it's meaningless to ask, that's the transcendental catch, it's meaningless to ask, okay, but what is madness really? Is there, a, as it were, divine message in it? Or it's simply a mental or brain process, simple pathology? For Foucault, this is an impossible question. Why? Because every approach to this question, you see my point, will already imply a certain transcendental horizon. Like, you cannot step out and approach reality from the zero point. We are always already, as Heidegger would have put it, included into it, part of it. So, uh, uh, so uh, 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 and again, for Heidegger, this is the history of philosophy. The point is not how things really are, the point is to describe different ways how people, in what in Marxist way we would have said, in their predominant ideology, how people experience what is real, what is just illusion, and so on and so on. Again, as I already hinted there, the very distinction between reality and illusion also is not an ahistorical one. It appears in a different way. This is what I think I mentioned the last time Paul Vane did the ancient Greeks believe in their gods like, if you were, of course, ancient Greeks did not believe literally in their gods. If you were to ask someone, do you really think if you climb 
to the top of uh, Mount Olympus, will you see there Zeus and Athena and so on? He said, no, I'm not crazy. But at the same time, it would be, that's what I want you to get, it would have been totally wrong to think that this means that for them, religion was just a subjective illusion. No, we are already importing into it a distinction for which there is no space, at least if I follow the predominant readings in ancient Greek. So, in ancient Greek universe. So, again, philo uh, and uh, uh, some, okay, the extreme of this position, transcendental, which is why I think although they attack transcendental subjectivity, they are fully transcendental, would have been what now it's disappearing, but 20, 30 years it was very popular, usually referred to as so-called, uh, how do you call it, uh, as so-called discursive materialism, you know. Materiality being here, not materiality of objects, but materiality of socially mediated discursive practices. For example, uh, uh, for why, what do I mean by this? Let's say I am Michel Foucault, or more modestly, but I know the Foucauldian. If you were to ask me, does man have an immortal soul? A Foucauldian answer would not have been yes or no, or we don't know, or, or we are not sure. The answer would be, but which is the discursive, discursive horizon, horizon of meaning, within which you can only even ask this question? You see, the idea is that when you raise a certain question, or is life after death? Okay, in what way the philosophical reaction would have been, I'm not telling you this is true or not, but I'm telling you what conceptual space do you inhabit or dwell in, so that this question is possible. And that's Foucault at his best, as it were. He shows often in a masterful way how even opposite positions, denying immortality of, of the soul, accepting it, share the same discursive space. The prop, yes? Uh, I have a question. Are you claiming that, in a way, structuralists of the 60s uh, were transcendentalists of the sorts? I'm claiming it, but I have good reasons to claim it. Do you know that Claude Levi-Strauss? defined his position as, it was a famous statement, as uh, transcendentalism without subject. So, I, I, uh, although I don't want to, I talk too much, I don't want to lose time completely here, because there are, even Deleuze, who turns violently against structuralism, talks about, it's a crucial term, about he defines his position as transcendental empiricism. Are you saying the Lacan and Althusser were transcendentalists? I mean, strong structuralism. Uh, with Lacan, uh, my God, I don't want to here. See, but these are such wonderful topics. That's the problem with Lacan. Up to a certain point, he was. It's clear. Up to what point? When he liked to emphasize, especially in the 50s, early 60s, his first-hand seminars and so on, where for him, symbolic order is the ultimate 
transcendental horizon, you know, where he says we cannot move outside language. Language is always already here, and all questioning about how did language itself rise up, or how, or similar are myths, myths in the sense that they are pseudo-explanations because they already presuppose that language is here. You have a wonderful story in one of, uh, I forget which one, not the main one, Lilliputin's, one of uh, 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 Swift, Gulliver, it's four parts, I think, no? He has the craziest theory of the existence of the, sorry, emergence of language. It's a joke, but it's a wonderful joke. He says that, he describes it like this. People were developing out of apes, blah, blah, and they needed to communicate. So they were doing it how? They were carrying on their back a bag with small models of, like, if you wanted to say house, you pick up a small model of a house, and so on. Then the bag grew larger and larger, and then at some point somebody says, it's stupid. Why carry so many models? Why don't we replace them with words, you know? But it, I mean, it's circular. You see the point. It's already here. And uh, so the, the horizon of early Lacan is so-called symbolic castration, which means fundamental, the fundamental lesson of psychoanalysis for Lacan is that, again, we cannot step out of language, language is always already here. All we know is, and I developed this in one of my books, forgot which one, via an ironic reference to Fred Jameson, you know, his book about structuralism, which is, by the way, not his best book, The Prison House of Language, no? That for Lacan, it's not so much a prison house, but he even says this somewhere, it's a torture house of language. The basic idea is that the process that Freud is describing as let's say, becoming cultural of a human animal, it's an extremely painful, traumatic process. You then have normal becoming human. And the name of this traumatic experience is for Lacan, symbolic castration, which I don't have time to go into it. I think in no way underprivileges women. It's not that women are not castrated, women are castrated. For Lacan, we don't have time to go into it. The signifier, phallus is precisely the signifier of castration. In the sense that, in the sense that, the more you are phallic, the more you are castrated. But that's another story, let's not go into it. So, uh, uh, my answer to you would have been, yes, but then things get complicated with late Lacan, with the real, uh, the real is precisely a dimension which cannot be accounted for in the terms of castration, but, uh, okay, I will give you, but please, that's why, no, I didn't. Did I give you something to read? If you want to know more about, if you are interested, look at my last big fat book, Absolute Recoil, the, the chapters two and three. There, I approach precisely this question, how can we move beyond the transcendental? 
Because again, back to Heidegger, I described it in other my small book event. For Heidegger, this event of meaning in the sense of a disclosure of a certain understanding of reality is the ultimate horizon. Heidegger calls it a rightness event. It's not a change in things themselves. It's a change in how things appear to us. In the horizon of pre-understanding, how we always already understand reality, it's basically simple. You know, Heidegger's point would have been, for example, that in modernity, the predominant mode of approaching reality is through technology and scientific exploration. We only touch the real through science. All other approaches, aesthetic and so on, are just more secondary, imaginary, and so on and so on. So again, for Heidegger, the ultimate horizon is this. But as I developed in my book, things get uh, complicated here. Because the consequence of this for Heidegger is that catastrophe is primarily an ontological transcendental catastrophe. As Heidegger likes to say, and he is consequent here, the true danger of, of, uh, of technology is not that we will all kill ourselves through some experiment uh, which will turn, take, take the wrong turn or atomic war or so ever. For Heidegger, the true danger is in the technological attitude as such. The catastrophe already happened. Incidentally, I love some of these scenarios of possible catastrophes. You know when now that they are trying to reproduce the conditions of Big Bang at CERN, at southern Switzerland. You know that one of the fears was that if they succeed, they will trigger a new Big Bang and all our reality will disintegrate. I like this scenario, that they will be proven right, but there will be no one in a very short time to whom you can prove that you are right. No? Okay, what I want to say is, and here, uh, Heidegger, you know, like, Heidegger is not an idealist. He is not claiming that this event of being creates things. But that's the things always already appear to us within a certain, let's call it, eventual horizon. We have our modern horizon, we have medieval horizon, classical Greek, oriental horizon, although there is not one. Here things go complex, confused with Heidegger. But then Heidegger, very mysteriously, a couple of times tries to move a step further. For example, he asks somewhere, what is then the status of things before ontological horizon? He admits something is out there, but it doesn't yet ontologically exist. Because to ontologically exist means to appear within a certain horizon of meaning. And he just speculates about this. He doesn't find his way out. And what I try to prove is that there is a Hegelian way. Because you know what's the problem? Yes. Transcendental approach is radical, and you cannot bypass it. That's my approach to this uh, 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 object uh, ontology, object-oriented ontology. I think they are unaware of the 
the extent to which they remain within the transcendental. They describe a certain image of universe, for example, Graham Harman, his distinction between external side of things, how they relate to other objects, and always this excess of how they are in themselves, and so on and so on. But it's clear that this is just a certain disclosure of reality. And you cannot simply claim this is how things are independently of us. But the big problem is this one. How can then we overcome the transcendental horizon without falling back into some kind of naive realism? We have direct access to things the way they are in themselves and so on and so on. And uh, I think that I try to find an answer following Hegel. It's a speculative trick which consists in this, that it's a wrong approach if in a naive realist way you try to distinguish between how things appear to us and how they are in themselves. You know, like, let's erase all illusions and all our misperceptions and then we will reach the thing in itself. The true problem is the opposite one. How can, in the midst of reality, which is meaningless in itself, just things in cosmos, how can something like illusion appear? Let me give you, so just to be clear to you, an example that I used already in my first book, and uh, then some 20 times, whatever. Uh, Theodore Adorno, uh, in a couple of times he uses this trick. For example, when he, Adorno, deals with uh, two, uh, deals with the relationship between two types of approach to society. Either this individualist, phenomenological type, where your starting point are individuals, and then you try to explain society as the result of the reaction of individuals. For example, we interact and then through repeated interaction, slowly uh, 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 institutions emerge and so on and so on. So again, the key is interaction of individuals and larger social structure arise out of it. Then we have the opposite approach to simplify it, uh, uh, usually identified in sociology with Emil Durkheim, who was, uh, how do you call it, collective organicist. He claimed society is the primordial fact. It's always already here. And individual is something which emerge, emerges out of social development. Individual is secondary. We begin with society, which is always already here. And then we have different forms of individuality which emerge depending on social. Then Adorno asks a question, which is, which of the two then is true? And here he pulls his big Hegelian trick. He says, it's a wrong question. We shouldn't say, ask, we have one approach, individualist, another approach, organicist, society comes first, and then ask, but what is the truth? He claims this, what if the very, yeah, he admits first this, that these two options cannot be synthesized, brought together. There is a gap that said, you cannot ever really deduce society from interaction of individuals, 
And you also cannot ever deduce individuals fully from some anonymous social field. So he admits the Vietis here, antinomy, to put it in Kantian terms. But the conclusion he draws from this is not. So we are always caught in antinomy and uh, we simply cannot know what society is in itself. He performs a wonderful simple trick. He says, but what if this very gap between individual and collective level is what characterizes today's society as such? You see the point. What is the very thing that appears to us as an epistemological obstacle? The gap between individual approach and collective approach is something historically mediated part is something that defines our society itself. And that's the basic, for me at least, Hegelian trick. That uh, the obstacle, the problem, becomes its own solution. What is in itself real is the very gap between individual and social, which characterizes at least our societies and so on and so on. And I claim, I don't, if you want to read my books on religion, I try to develop it there, that in this sense, Hegel was a Christian. You find this unique same move only in Christianity. Because, you know, the usual religious problem is we are separated from God, abandoned by God, so how to rejoin God? And then, through prayer, through good works, whatever you want. But for Hegel, Christian solution is a different one. Christian solution is this one. Okay, you are screwed up like Job. You experience yourself totally separated from God. At that point, you are in the same position as Christ on the cross. You know that the gap that you thought separates you from God is a gap immanent to God himself. It's the gap of, you know, that terrifying moment on the cross. Christ says, Eliyani Lama Savakani, Father, why have you abandoned me? And so on and so on. You see the beauty. That's how you overcome the gap. Not by overcoming it, but by locating the gap itself into the object. So it's through the very, this experience of the very gap that separates you from God that you are part of divinity. You are part of God. Which is why, as Hegel points out, for Christianity is totally totally against all this topic of, you know, how can we rejoin divinity? No, we don't rejoin divinity. Divinity descends to us. But again, not in the simple sense of, uh, of you know, God sending a messenger to us. No. Our separation from God is a separation of God from himself. And Hegel draws from this, maybe he is not right, a radical historicist conclusion which is that our history, the way humanity historically experiences God, is the history of God himself. <coughs> that, you know, self. So for Hegel, different religions are not simply... First, of course, for Hegel, you cannot simply separate one religion is right, others are bullshit. You also cannot say, they are all just human imaginations, blah, blah, blah. No, what Hegel 
claims is that as he puts it, the process of human understanding of God is the process of divine self-understanding. Okay, but let's not. So I hope you, I gave you a vague idea of how this would be my path of moving beyond the transcendental dimension. Of how, you know, not this naive approach, oh my God, we are caught in illusions, can I jump beyond and approach the thing itself, but the opposite, the opposite. What is, what is most real is the very gap that separates me, right? This is from reality. And this is what also, uh, this is again, I love Hegel because of this I'm so obsessed with Hegel. Hegel's problem is not this usual one, the in it, you know, like, are we infinitely caught in our subjective illusions? Or can we reach the way things really are? No, for Hegel, the big problem is the opposite one. How is within the stupid flat reality, this gray world out there, how is something so traumatic like separation, lie, illusion possible? For Hegel, illusion is something incredible, the greatest power, he calls this power of the greatest power of absolute negativity. That we, with our mind, we can tear apart what in nature it belongs together. So, again, this, this is why, incidentally, I am so obsessed, obsessed, okay, I try to understand it, with quantum physics. Because to really answer this question, that's my pretend, pretense, I'm not sure I succeed, to really answer the question of how can something like spirit emerge out of nature, of course, and not to give a circular account that there is always already spirit in nature, I think that only the image of, or the structure of reality described by quantum physics renders, is strong enough to account for it. But again, I got a little bit lost in these uh, improvisations. So, again, based on this, before I go to object-oriented ontology and ecology, I want to give you a short theater of horrors, so that you will not think that I'm just praising Heidegger. Maybe this will interest you. I want to describe to you the contours of a, maybe some of you have already read it. The problem of uh, the, the big scandal, let's call it like this, a year ago, when uh, finally they were published in Germany. It's not yet finished, but the first volume was published of so-called Schwarze Hefte, black book notes of Heidegger. Some 20, 25 volumes. Uh, no, sorry, just small book notes in which from late 20s till, I think, late 50s, early 60s, Heidegger was writing, putting down his intimate thoughts. And of course, it caused such a scandal. You can see there how, to the end, Heidegger persisted in his anti-Semitism and in his ambiguous fascination with Nazism and so on. And I will not try to shame in any way Heidegger. The shock was so strong that the president of one of the Heidegger associations in Germany, 
stepped down and said, I no longer can do it anymore. <coughs> uh, so again, uh, what happens here? Uh, What these volumes show is that after 1934, Heidegger effectively cultivated more and more doubts about Hitler and the Nazi regime. He was not bluffing here. When he stepped down as the dean of Freiburg University, he was disappointed. But a more horrible thing is the precise shape of this disappointment. Basically, he was blaming the enemy. What Heidegger reproached Hitler with, reproached Hitler for, was not the Nazi stance as such, but the fact that the Nazis also succumbed to the technological nihilist, what he calls Machenschaft, this manipulative, manipulative attitude, technologically and so on, manipulating reality, Becoming like America, Great Britain, I mean, United States, Great Britain, France, Soviet Union, and so on, who are always more guilty. A quote from this black book notes, all well-meaning excavation of earlier folklore, all conventional cultivation of custom, all extolling of landscape and soil, all glorification of the blood, is just foreground and smokescreen, and necessary in order to obscure what truly and solely is the unconditional domination, dominion of the machination of destruction. Uh, so, as it is clear from many similar passages, Heidegger's critique of Nazism is thus a critique of actually existing Nazism on behalf of its own metaphysical, what he calls, inner greatness. Uh, furthermore, Heidegger's reserves towards the Nazi regime had nothing to do with his eventual rejection of its murderous brutality. Far from denying the Nazi barbarism, Heidegger locates into it precisely the greatness of Nazism. Here is a quote. <laughs> it's crazy. Quote, National socialism is a barbaric principle. Therein lies its essence and its capacity for greatness. The danger is not Nazism itself, like Nazi brutality as threat to Western civilization, but instead that it will be rendered innocuous via communists about the true, the good, and the beautiful, and so on and so on. So we see, this is what those who try to redeem Heidegger like, but he grew doubtful about Nazism. Yes, but not in the sense of, my God, it's horrible, but in the sense of, beneath this all brutality, blood and soil, they don't really mean it. They are really manipulators like, like who? Like British, like blah, blah, and like the Jews, of course. No? Because let's go on. While antisemitism persists and survives Heidegger's disenchantment with Nazism, okay, one has to admit that it doesn't play a central role in Heidegger's edifice. He has just there 
terrifying. A couple of passages in this black book notes on Nazi, on, on anti, on the Jews. Uh, 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 he uses Jews just as the embodiment of, as it were, what is wrong with the West, of Western nihilism. Heidegger's point is that, and he calls the term Weltjudentum, world Jewry, Jewry is what embodies at its purest this Machenschaft, calculating, nihilistic attitude of manipulation, and so on and so on. Now, of course, some defenders try to save Heidegger, but you see, Jews are just one example. We can erase the Jews and still claim that Heidegger's mistake was not in his critique of technology and so on, modern nihilism, but simply he took the wrong example as modern nihilism at its purest. Well, as a good Hegelian, my answer is here, examples are never good. You know, the, the, uh, 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 and because if you try to save Heidegger in this way, you can also save Hitler himself, because as nice Marxist reading demonstrated, it's absolutely clear that when Hitler hates Jews, Jews embody class struggle. Jews are simply those who are supposed to bring antagonism, class struggle into society. So you can then only say, oh, Hitler was right, we need organic order, he was just wrong to project uh, the, the antagonistic element onto, uh, onto the Jews. Again, the truly horrible thing, I think, in this black book notes is double. We can nonetheless reconstruct a whole theory of Jews from Heidegger. First, Heidegger performs the well-known operation of rejecting primitive biological racism, and his uh, uh, defenders always quote this. Heidegger always emphasizes Nazi biological racism is vulgar, and so on and so on. Yes, but uh, uh, what Heidegger does is replace biological racism with, let's call it, uh, transcendental spiritual racism. Jews are, of course, not biologically inferior, but they are condemned because they embody a certain spiritual stance, which is again the stance of technological manipulation, exploitation, blah, 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 which makes them what they are. So, uh, European nihilism, or what Heidegger calls forgetting of being, culminates in modern Machenschaft, spirit of machinations, uh, manipulations, which, quote from Heidegger, leads to total deracination resulting in the self-alienation of peoples, end of quote, and contemporary Jewry, Jewry like Judentum, Jewishness, quote, I quote from Heidegger, that's the horror, in the, that the increase in power of the Jews finds its basis in the fact that Western metaphysics, above all in its modern incarnation, offers fertile ground for the dissemination of an empty rationality and calculability, which in this way gains a foothold in spirit, without ever being able to grasp from within the hidden 
rearrange of decision and so on and so on. So there a clear correlation between Jews and what Heidegger calls the modern technological division. The world Jewry, Weltjudentum, thus embodies the technological degradation of our lives, which is why, as Heidegger observes in a related text, quote, it would be important to inquire about the basis of, of the Jewish unique predisposition towards planetary criminality. Here we are. Uh, so, how about the Holocaust? Here, even I was shocked. Heidegger goes to the end. Here things get really dark. As Heidegger observed, he writes in his notebook in 42, with regard to Jews, I quote, the highest type and the highest act uh, of politics consists in placing your opponent in a position where he is compelled to participate in his own self-annihilation. It's crazy. Wait a minute. The best or the most horrible is coming. End of quote. So, in an obscenely Hegelian, pseudo-Hegelian way, the elimination, annihilation, of European Jews must be understood as an act of Jewish self-annihilation. Selbstvernichtung. His word. The Holocaust was ultimately an act of Jewish self-annihilation insofar as at Auschwitz and other death camps, the Jews who were the prime uh, uh, movers behind machination, technological devastation, and so on, they themselves succumbed to industrial mass murder. You see the terrifying logic. Jews embodied the spirit of technological exploitation, destruction of nature. So, it's only logical that at the end this fate was also their own. Uh, so, Europe's Jews only fell prey to forces that they themselves had unleashed, or as Heidegger states, quote, when the essentially Jewish, in the metaphysical sense, struggles against what is uh, empirically Jewish, the high point of self-annihilation in history is attained. End of quote. In short, the Nazis, in organizing the technological annihilation of Jews, merely turned the essentially Jewish stand of technological manipulation against the empirical Jews uh, themselves. I mean, this is a pretty terrifying idea. You have to admit it. So, and I don't want in any way to redeem Heidegger here. Uh, okay, we don't have time now to go into this uh, topic of uh, what pushed Heidegger in this direction. It's a very complex uh, topic. I would like just to say this, that the obvious solution or outcome of these discoveries would have been what some radical critics of Heidegger, from Richard Wallin to Emmanuel Fay and so on in France, would have been 
They propose simply to directly criminalize Heidegger in the sense of he shouldn't be even considered as a serious philosopher. One should simply deprive him of his academic status. He is out. I think that this is an all to this direct criminalization of Heidegger is an all too easy way out. And even Derrida pointed this out. One should be, you know, you avoid the true traumatic problem, which is, unfortunately, Heidegger was a mega great philosopher. And the true trauma is, is the same problem that I think I already mentioned two days ago. Like, how could, but in a more less terrifying way, like, how could someone like Reinhard Heydrich probably effectively enjoy late Beethoven's, uh, 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 late Beethoven's uh, 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 quartets and so on? Or, and many other examples you find of uh, war, war criminals to whom in their private writings you cannot deny an authentic spiritual greatness. And I recently spoke with a Jewish friend of mine who is a Heideggerian, and I asked him, how can you, after all this, how can you remain Heideggerian? And he told me, he gave me quite a shocking answer. He referred to some ancient Jewish wisdom according to which there are some deep traumatic insights that can only be formulated by a diabolically evil person. You know that to see something, you something, some deep hidden traumatic truth, you have to be evil. We can only get it from, I think this is maybe a too poetic way out, but I think that. Sorry? There is no worse anti-Semite than a Jewish person. Yeah, but wait a minute. They are... In what precise sense do you mean this? I developed this as a paradox, uh, and this is why my book in German was censored, you know, pages out, when I claimed uh, that today Zionism is the last form of anti-Semitism. But I meant something quite empirical. I experienced this with when I was in Israel with my friend Udi Aloni, and at some round table, Zionist defenders of Israeli state politics attacked him for what? That he is not really one of them, he's only interested in money and fame, he just pretends to be one of them. And I was shocked, I told them, you know, you are describing him in exactly the same way in the late 19th century, national anti-Semites in France were describing Jews. You pretend to be one of us, but you are only interested in money or whatever, you are not really one of us. They say, I claim that today, you know, also, uh, uh, you have even this moment of self-attributing self to the Jews, to Jews, the tendency to self-annihilation. Zionists call this self, uh, Jewish self, self-hating Jews, you know, like they want to uh, destroy them. And not, I, more, but again, 
that will. What I want to say is that, of course, I will try to put it like this. Of course, that would have been my conclusion. Uh, uh, of course, we cannot accept this says something. I'm totally opposed to this simple defense of Heidegger in the sense of he was just misled, blah, blah, blah. We can reformulate his entire edifice without. No, here I'm a Hegelian. The basic Hegel's insight is about examples is that, uh, I've written about it, maybe you know it, I'm sorry if I repeat myself. You know the German word for example is Beispiel. Beispiel, which means it comes by, it plays, like it emerges by something that comes on the top of it. But, and in this sense, as Hegel deploys very well, Hegel is anti-Platonic. Why? In the Platonic universe, you have the pure idea, and then you have examples which are lower and lower. No example can fully fit the idea. Hegel accepts this just with an addendum. So much worse for the idea. That is to say, for Hegel, every example, every actual situation that exemplifies an idea secretly already undermines it. There is always more in an example of the idea than this idea itself. And this is how, I give you the very elementary matrix, this is how Hegel's progress dialectical progress functions. It's not, it's not that you begin, it's not that when you have a certain attitude, notion, Hegel does not undermine it through a reference to a better idea. No, he says, his criticism is always self-criticism. He says, let's just exemplify this idea. Let's realize it and imagine realizing it, and in this way we will discover how this idea, by way of actualizing itself, refutes itself. To give you an extremely simple example, this uh, masochist mystical self-torturing. You should erase the traces of yourself to get rid of your false self and become a pure spirit or whatever. Hegel says, but the very form the practice of this masochist spiritualist who want to erase their self is that, and this is often my impression, at least with some false mystics, they talk all the time about themselves. You know, is there still some trace of the how to erase it? They're just occupied. You know, the practice of their annihilation, annihilation of the self, this is always what bothered me a little bit, maybe I'm wrong, with so-called Eastern spirituality. They talk about how we in the West are egocentric, blah, blah, we are just nothing, part of cosmos. Fuck it. And then they talk all the time about our spirit, how to overcome this. That they talk only about their inner life. Okay, uh, so again, back to it. My point would have been this one, that, uh, of, so again, yes, back to Hegel. The fact that Heidegger takes as the example of modern technological manipulation the Jewish spirituality, of course, has very heavy consequences 
We cannot say, let's erase the example, let's keep his idea. No, we should definitely claim that something must be wrong with his idea. The problem here is that nonetheless, fact, his ideas are great ideas. But we have to confront this, we have to fight through it. And I know this, okay, I'll put it in another way. Uh, there are many Heideggerians, uh, uh, there are many Heideggerians who are even radical leftists, like, for example, years ago he died uh, of, I don't know what, Rainer Schurman, you know, a kind of a mystical Heideggerian, today he's kind of forgotten, then today John Caputo, Gianni Fatimo. Uh, John Caputo is interesting because uh, uh, he, in a polemic against me, he tries to claim that I focus too much on capitalism, that can't we imagine a more, like, why? Isn't it that if we were to get capitalism with healthcare, more equality, blah, blah, why not? You know, and a nice friend of mine attacked him that he wants to uh, replace capitalism with capitalism. Like, it's a nice, dirty job. Okay, but now I will say something in defense of them. I think that all those leftist Heideggerians, again, today, Vatimo, John Caputo, it would be wrong to say that they are simply misreading Heidegger, or, on the other hand, that uh, they are, without knowing it, closet fascists, you know. That they only think they are leftists, but really their structure is closet fascists. I think a more radical conclusion had to be drawn. There is not one essential, stable core of Heidegger's thinking. It's open. For example, even empirically, it's not as simple as that after... Let me tell you a funny story, which I mentioned in one of my books, I think. Uh, uh, one of the big participants of leftist movement, student revolt in the late 60s in Germany, all around, told me that he, with his friends, visited Heidegger in 68 to inquire how does he stand towards movement. And Heidegger was enthusiastic about that. Okay, but then he explained his enthusiasm and this somehow ruined the pleasure. Because he said, you're trying to do now what I tried to do in 1933 as a rector. <laughs> but nonetheless, do you know that Heidegger consistently, it's clear now, after World War II, voted for social democracy? When, when uh, that was the big event of my youth, when Willy Brandt was first elected as chancellor and so on, Heidegger wrote an enthusiastic letter to his wife. You know, like, finally we got rid of those Schwarz and the Blacks, the Christian, Demo uh, uh, Christian Democrats, and so on. So, uh, what I'm saying is that, is that there is no way we can, there is no shortcut. You know, Heidegger is a mega great thinker. What I describe you here in a very simplified way, this idea of, of uh, transcendental events, history as a succession of events, pure eventality. And then there are, of course, immediately problems. How do you move from early Heidegger, Zeitung, uh, being entitled to this? It's a problem. But what I want to say is that 
the only path of thinking is to think through Heidegger, in the sense of he did something great, but the result was catastrophic. And this result is immanent to his greatness. And to think this contradiction. What do we have? It's the same as you remember, I was telling you two days ago, it's the same for me with communism, with Christianity and so on. I never liked these games of, oh, Marx was pure and so on, just, and then it doesn't matter where you set the limit. For some it's already late angles, his companion, for others it's Lenin, for yet others it's, uh, it's, uh, it's Stalin and so on. But uh, I think that you cannot play this game so easily. There has to be something already in Marx himself. It's not so much what he said, maybe even more what he didn't say. Well, he didn't see the problem. And so I am here very much a pessimist, not a pessimist, in the sense that, that would be my position if it interests you. I fully accept Marxist critique of capitalism. I still think that his critique of political economy is an unheard of achievement. The problem is that he uses a certain notion of communism to measure, let's call it naively, as a standard to measure the capitalist alienation, antagonisms, or whatever. No. This is best explained, best uh, discernible in his formulas of instead of, you know, always Marx likes to use, already the young Marx, this rhetoric of instead of work making us richer and more free, works the more we work, the more we are slaves, and so on and so on. Where Marx face is that what I call immanent normativity, Marx's idea of Communism is simply, to simplify it for me, the idea of capitalism without capital. Marx is well aware that there is an incredible dynamics of capitalism. Capitalism is crazy, the most productive system. But Marx thinks that at a certain point, the form of capital becomes an obstacle to it, and then you can erase this form and get an even stronger dynamics. I think this doesn't hold. Because you know where? Now, this would be philosophical reading of what I don't like, Marxist text, that introduction to critique of political economy, blah, blah, where he describes his, it's horrible, I reject, lo logic of history, when he says, you know, at a certain point when productive forces develop, then relations of production are in harmony with them, but then when forces of production develop more, there is a gap and you need a social revolution so that new relations of production emerge, which, and so on. But I think that precisely for capitalism this doesn't work. There was no epoch of hard... Capitalism is in crisis from the very beginning. And that's why it works so well. That would be my thesis, you know. That this is why Marxists always have this problem. It's a crisis, it's a deeper crisis. Yes, but the more capitalism is in crisis, the more, you know. So the miracle of capitalism is that, again, the more discord you have, crisis, the more 
it is pushed the system to invent something new, to pull itself out, and so on and so on. So, you see my point. Uh, 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 sorry. Marx, I think, should be criticized in this sense. To what extent his vision of communism was still too much indebted to the capitalist universe. He just wanted basically capitalism without its antagonisms. Yes? Uh, do you think that Stalinism is a manifestation of that? And, and do you, would you say In a way, that? yes, you can say this. Yes, because you know what people don't take into account, and I know this firsthand because yesterday I was at your public library with a guy who well, I told him afterwards, we are good friends now, Steve Kotkin, no that. We can be friends, but when my people take power, you go to Gula, no? <laughs> and he says, thanks, the same, no, but... <laughs> and, uh, but I tell you that, uh, that uh, uh, you know, to understand properly Stalinism, you have to take into account, already in the 1920s in Soviet Union, their absolute obsession with America, America. You know that Henry Ford had an almost half-divine status in 1920s. For such a nice irony, while for us, uh, enlightened Western Marxists, Henry Ford is, you know, how we call it, that word on track. Conveyor. Assembly line? Yes, assembly line, the worst alienation. For them, it was the idea, you know. So, now comes words. Did, I think I already mentioned this even to you then. When Stalin was asked in 29, can he define the figure of ideal Bolshevik? Maybe I already used this here, I'm sorry. You know what his answer was? The combination of Russian passionate dedication and of American pragmatic spirit. You can even explain in this way, you know, we all mock, didn't I already mention this to you? Did I use Two days ago, I didn't, the example of this Stalinist Baroque, you know, this sketchy. This is New York. In what sense? Uh, an architect explained to me, when Stalinist architecture emerged in early 30s, they were fascinated by this type of buildings in New York. And you know what's their origin? Michael Sorkin, the husband of John Cobbett, explained to me. Did you know that, uh, you know, Manhattan was full, so they Race, they, the only way to expand was to build up, and then some of the buildings collapsed. So then city authority decided that if you want to go up, you must go in a little bit, no? And this then was overtaken by... <coughs> there is even mutual influence. Did I use the last time I didn't, the use of, I think I did it, King Kong. You know the story of King Kong, <coughs> iconic image, you know, Empire State Building, uh, the gigantic ape on the top. You know the origin of it, Soviet Union. In the late 20s, the producers, which later produced King Kong, visited Soviet Union and met, they were still there, some of those architects, and they saw this is a famous constructionist model. It was never built for the Palace of Soviets. Kind of a skyscraper and on the top, gigantic statue of Lenin. They said, replace Lenin with eight and we have the ultimate. It's empirically taken from 
from Soviets. On the other hand, Soviets were so fascinated, maybe they were right, by Hollywood. They, the, the, the boss of Soviet cinema visited Hollywood and was, they say, you know, Hollywood was strictly organized. Everything was planned. You had a group of scenario with, whose job was just to select, to read word literature, to select jokes, others for this, for that. And after a point, it works even now. I met a guy through friends in Hollywood. I asked him what is he doing. He told me I'm Campbellizing scripts. You know what he was referring to? You know who is Joseph Campbell? That Jungian, blah blah, who was the key influence on George Lucas for Star Wars. And to Campbellize, it became a verb in Hollywood. Means to add some pseudo-deep spiritual thoughts, you know. Like we have an action moving and the producer said we need to Campbellize it a little bit. We think somebody has said, but what meaning does it have? Where do we, you know, to, to kind of a, and you can follow this process nicely, I claim, in some Clint Eastwood movies, you know. Dirty hair is just this, but you see Campbellization here and there. So, Soviets were so fascinated by this, you know, that there was a plan, it was interrupted because of World War II, they had a plan to build on, which is now again Russia, Crimea, Crimea Peninsula, uh, or whatever, another Soviet Hollywood. They were so fascinated. And also, for example, McDonald's. They loved it. Hardline, you know what fascinated them? They wanted people to work and then to have quick, efficient food, no? They, they, they saw, maybe they were right, McDonald's like, where America is almost communist, <laughs> So, you, again, but again, back to it. You see my problem. My problem is not to avoid the tragedy of history. The tragedy, if you claim Heidegger is a criminal, it's all too easy. The problem is precisely this part. A great philosopher, and he did that. How come that it was possible for him still to be a really great philosopher? Can he be redeemed? For example, another half Heideggerian French guy, Jean-Luc Nancy, and the other guy, Jean-Pierre They their entire effort is to isolate the aspect they try to locate it in sign and sign in the notion of mid sign. Mid sign in the sense of da sign. To say these stupid terms, human beings are not alone, we are always thrown together. But that Heidegger didn't pursue that line enough. So that you must add the different form of collective analysis and that to fill in this gap, then fascist community comes and so on and so on. So again, uh, I think that what some Habermas pupils, like Richard Wallin and so on, want to do, again, it's a too easy job. You can excommunicate Heidegger, but then no wonder you cannot really think neither fascism nor communism and so on. That's why, although I have a certain great, as I already said two days ago, great respect for Habermas, but for me Habermas is so clearly no, his theoretical framework is not strong enough to think what went wrong, to put it simply, in the 20th century. 
And the moment you try to think that, the moment you try to think it, you are accused of yourself being like, like the standard Habermasian trick is to accuse those who want to analyze too closely fascist irrationalism as themselves fascinated by it, irrationalist, and so on and so on. That's why, you know, for example, Habermas warns against ethnic blah blah blah, but he doesn't really provide a convincing, a convincing analysis of it. And I think the trick to be, here I am, Lacanian. You know what's Lacan's point? It's not, oh, the lesson of psychoanalysis is the darkness of human passions. It's just, no. Uh, Lacan puts very nicely in his text on, uh, for sorry, one of the Ecri, that uh, what is so provocative in Freud is not the irrationality of drives of sexuality, but how discursive rational they are. This is what Lacan means with his unconsciously structured like language and so on and so on. That even drives, if you take the chapter in seminar 11, he speaks about machine montage of drives. It's a, something artificial. Drives have nothing to do with some instinctual authenticity and so on and so on. And I think Lacan is right, there is nothing in the Jungian says archetypal, archetypal about drives and so on. They are contingent, symbolic constructs and so on. Lacan even, here you can see where Judith Butler goes a little bit too quickly. Lacan not only is aware that Oedipus complex is historical, he even locates the very discovery of Oedipus complex, Freudian, at a certain moment. And it's more correct than the usual idiots who claim, yeah, Oedipus complex, this was in venue for Freud's time when it was Victorian oppression. My God, I read recently a history of sexuality where I told this, what Victorian oppression? If you try to imagine very well now, how much people were fucking per capita per week, Probably they were never fucking as much as in, as in Victorian times. You know where the idea came to be? You know the shitty movie I didn't like it too much? French Lieutenant's Woman. There is a dialogue between Mary Strip and Jeremy Arnold, which quotes some statistics, which I then looked upon. It felt that if you take, in, uh, if you take into account the number of prostitutes in London in 1880s, and if you take into account all the men who were their potential customers, you get it. And if you accept a modest estimate that each prostitute had like only four or five customers per week, you get a totally incredible number. That an average London guy was going to a prostitute like two, three times a week or something like that. It's totally crazy. So what I'm saying is that Lacan shows nicely that uh, not all Freud was able to formulate Oedipus complex precisely because in social reality Oedipus complex was already in crisis. You know, it's, this confirms Hegel's view of how theory always comes afterwards, too late. It's only when some phenomenon is in crisis, already begins to, be, to disintegrate, that you can form uh, that you can form its theory.
In other words, I, I don't understand this fear of Habermasians. You know where you find this fear even more? Are, are you, were you aware of it? Now, this may surprise you. I am still friendly, although he is not so much a right-winger, but definitely not a left-winger. Finger, uh, I said finger, my God. Winger. Peter Schlotterdijk. You, you don't remember? A couple of times he provoked incredible backlash. For example, some 15 years ago, when was that uh, debate on a human park or whatever, and he was accused by Habermasians, Peter Schlotterdijk, of defending Nazi eugenics. No, I'm here on Schlotterdijk's side. I knew him, I debated this with him. His point is just this one, deeply true. With the prospect of biogenetics, things radically change. We need new rules. Why? Because the standard ethical rules that we have simply rely on the notion of a free personality, free will, education, and so on. But the, the prospect of biogenetic and other manipulations changes this. The moment you're very... Just think about education. Okay, let's say you are more intelligent than me, which is quite possible, I'm getting synapses. And then, uh, let's say we work for an exam. You work hard, but I take some pill or whatever, not just the ones that you already have today, and almost with no work, I learn. But you know what this means? This means that the whole pedagogy, which is based on the idea that, you know, education, hard work, what if we even will be able to manipulate basic ethical, psychic attitudes, fear, courage, and so on? You know what's the horror? They will lose their authentic ethical status. If I'm a coward and I take a pill and I'm no longer a coward, where is the ethical greatness of overcoming your fear through courage and so on? And what, what, uh, what Schlotterdijk is just saying is that, hi, hello, this is a big problem. We will have to rethink it. The Habermasian answer was simply, basically, a prohibition. We shouldn't do it. We, we have to set limits to biogenetic and so on manipulations. But for me, as I already said, this is a few days ago, the problem are not these manipulations as such. The problem is there, because look, this is the problem. That's the trick. If I'm a coward, and very simple example, I know it's not as simple as that, and if through some biogenetic or even simple chemical manipulation, you can change my ethical attitudes. You know what this means? It's not only you cannot then even distinguish my authentic ethical attitude and the one that manipulated through chemistry. Because if you can change it with chemistry, it simply means that already my previous innocent attitude just reflected a different chemical composition. If you can manipulate ethical attitudes through this biochemical or biogenetic manipulations, it simply means that 
You know, even the authentic one lose their authenticity. It means I may appear courageous, whatever, but it's just I was lucky to get that chemical or genetic. So where is our freedom and so on? I don't, I'm not saying, as I already emphasized two days ago, I'm not saying that it's a lost case. You know, I'm not saying that. But it's a, ah, the guy who you should read, yes, I mentioned him now, I can't miss, Benjamin Liebet, L-I-B-E-D. I think he's now retired. He taught at, uh, uh, at Berkeley. He made, I think I mentioned it, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, he made that legendary experiment of, you know, proving that when you do the most contingent gesture, that, uh, like, a split of a second before you make conscious decision, like, he asked people, okay, sit and at any moment quickly decide to grab this paper. Measuring your brain, he demonstrated that before you make the decision, split of a second, orders are already on the way. In other ways, your brain already makes a decision and the conclusion from it would have been that when you think you are making a free contingent decision, you are just becoming aware about something blah, blah, blah. But now comes the interesting point. Libet believes in the freedom of the will. And in a wonderfully Hegelian way, he locates it at a different point. He claims we are looking at the wrong place, which is positive decisions. He claims that what you can do is to, when decision is on the way, to block it. That negativity is freedom. You can block it. It's a wonderful idea. That you know, the zero level free act is not, I do this, I want to do this, but to say no, to stop it, uh, sabotage and so on. So back to Sloterdijk. He did this. He did another great thing, I claim. Uh, uh, like, he was attacked like crazy, but I love him for his, he's more crazy than me provoking things. He said, this is nice provocation, that the great illusion of 20th century was that the poor can save the world. You know, he said, now we know only the ultra-rich can save the world. What does he mean by this? He wants to save social democracy. His idea is this one. Communism doesn't work. Rich are inventors productive, and his idea is this one. How to, that we simply have to show greater, give greater social recognition to the rich, and this will, it's a naive idea, I don't agree with it, this will justify us then taking even more money from them, and so on and so on. He's trying to save social democratic welfare state, basically. And, uh, and so on and so on. So again, what I'm saying is that, you see, this is the impotence of simply Habermasias attacking him, neo-Nazi, and so on and so on. Okay, he is often naive and so on. Although, deeply right, now I remember it, I've written this in my book. You know who died now a week ago or two? Lee Kuan Yew, the founder of Singapore. Ah, this is an ingenious idea, as Lothar He said that if ever people will be building a monument in hundred years from now, in future, to someone from our age, it will be Lee Kuan Yew. Why? He invented authoritarian capitalism. He was the first to show the direction where we are all moving. And very intelligently, Schlotterdijk shows that this is not just Asian primitives, they are not good enough for democracy. No, it's a global, it has nothing to do with Asian values. 
You see, he can be also his book on globalization is a wonderful idea where he demonstrates how global capitalism is not just global, everyone is in it. It also it is also globe in the sense of the privileged live under a globe, even if it's an invisible globe, and we don't really see what is outside, even if we think it's the logic of Elysium, if you saw the movie, or there is an old one, did you see it? Logan's run, or Sardos, and so on. You know, the primitive, and he gives wonderful descriptions of this. Of course, rationally, we know there are people living in misery. But you know, one thing is to rationally know it, the other thing is to be really aware of it. Like, I will fly next week, also for two days to LA. I already mentioned this to you, no? You, land to legs, then you take a cab to Beverly Hills or whatever. But, you know, nobody sees the area around legs, which is slum, right? So this is why Lex Airport was built there. Because screw the poor, who cares, all the, all the planes landing there and so on. So this was the shock for us in Europe. It's a wonderful, horrible thing. In Florence suburbs, Firenze, Italy, there was a fire a year and a half, two years ago, and what happened there is that 20 Chinese died or whatever. And they discovered that it's not only Chinese gulag, third world sweatshops, there in the summer of, of Firenze, noble European culture, there was a whole ghetto, 15 to 20,000 Chinese working like slaves illegally and so on and so on, in terrible conditions. You see my point? Even if we are rationally aware, in some sense, we don't see it. And this is, I think, how our news manipulate us. You see it more or less, but you see it on screen. It's not part of your reality, all the poverty and so on and so on. That's why we like charity. I always have a theory that charity is a strategy of basically bribery. We pay you to stay there, you know. <laughs> it's always, it's something, I'm, I'm so disgusted by all these appeals, you know, like you have a photo of some black guy, boy, for example, with a distorted lid, and then for five dollars a month, you can make a change, you can, and so on. You know what is beneath this? It's basically, what they are telling you is, give five dollars a month, and you can not only forget about problems, you can even feel good that you are. Sorry, I got a little bit lost into it, so, but we go on next Monday, no? Thanks very much for your patience, and fuck you, only two of you. Ah, the lady has gone there, but it really, I, I, I really sincerely wanted to, because I know, my God, it always happened to me, why she was, uh, Hurt and so on and so on. Where she's, but I, what I really didn't get is, like, you know what I mean? For me, non-sexist society is not a society where you have to be careful all the time. It's a society where you can talk dirty, but it doesn't work in sexist way. Again, as I told you, a society which overcomes racism for me, it's not a society where you follow all the rules, oh my God, I said black, no, I should say African-American and so on. 
But when, and you know, I have a couple, I've told you this, I think, of black friends who really liked me and told me, call me nigger, I allow you to do it. You know what I mean? That's the problem. This is what makes me, this is what makes me so afraid that political correctness just, it just, it keeps the thing, you know, there is always a certain obscene pleasure in political correctness, this endless self, my God, I use that expression, was I still maybe a racist or whatever, you know, this great pleasure of, again, looking deeper and deeper into you and discovering new strata of, I'm saying, just forget about it. This is how, let me conclude with this story, then I go, taxi is waiting for the airport. I was in India. I met Naxalit there. My God, I could have been arrested. One million of Maoist guerrillas. I met one of them, who was a taxi driver, but really federated. And I was with my publisher there. The taxi driver understood some political names and asked my publisher, with whom I got in England, uh, uh, how is this guy? Is he one of us? Naxalit? No? Guerrillas and the guy tells him yes. And then the taxi driver through the guy asked me a question. And it was pure obscene offer of solidarity. He asked me, it's terrible, I warn you, if you thought that was insulting. He asked me, there is a well-known image of old Gandhi, like this on a stick in a white tunic walking from one village to another. He asked me, what is for you the message of this form? I knew it must be something extremely dirty. And yes, I guessed it, what he wants. I told him, it's a call to the next village, the stick. I want a boy to bug me, to fuck me. If not, I will have to do it myself with a stick. The guy stopped a taxi, embraced me, and said, you are one of us. And now comes the ethical reality. Then we spoke for two hours, and no, it wasn't that we were telling each other even more dirty stories. It was pure politics and so on, but enabled, you know, that obscene gesture was like, yes, you are not a snob, you are one of us. Again, that was the miracle. We did not then talk, oh, did you hear about the guy who fucked three goats or whatever. No, it was pure cold political analysis, what they can do. But that was my test. This is, I claim, how you really overcome racism there. Okay, sorry, I talked too much. See you next time. Now, this I told you, I am going there to meet Jerry Brown tomorrow. He promised, but it's not sure that he will come to, to stand for a debate. Sorry? I can leave it just here. Okay? I'm sorry now that the limousine is waiting. Will you be here just today or also next week? I didn't give it to me. Okay, if you want my stupid signature. No? Like, like, you see your uncle, the one who lends our